I think uh was Braveheart who's and was a Braveheart, yeah, William Wallace who said every man lives but not every man no, every man dies but not every man really lives. Uh and it that phrase has been stated in multiple ways, uh, but the same basic truth that just because you're alive and you exist doesn't mean you know how to actually really live. And there's a passage in the Gospels where Christ, who in that marvelous um, uh, section of the Gospel of John in chapter 10, where he says, you know, the thief comes in to rob and to steal. And, you know, I come that they may have life. And he's talking about he's a shepherd and we're his sheep and that there's trouble on earth where those who are trying to steal their way into the sheep pen so that they can either, you know, so they can cause trouble. And for whatever reason, people want to do that. Uh, they uh, lie and cheat and steal, and, and are, there's a lot of false teachers and false doctrines. And, of course, we have Satan in the kingdom of darkness who want to rob people of true life. And Christ said, I came to give them life. But he said then, he used the modifier, he said, abundantly. And to have that life, as I've come to know by personal experience, which has been, is, is always been backed up by the Scripture, not, not all my personal experience, that's not what I mean. I mean the experience that if you don't know Christ's person intimately, if you don't understand him deeply, I mean understand him as a person and what he's about and what he wants and what he loves and who he is, then you'll never have that abundant life. You'll lie to yourself that you have it and you don't. And you'll know it. You'll know, especially if you're one who reads the scripture, you'll know that you don't possess it. That you're surviving, yes, but you're not really living. And this is what Christ wants for us. And, and God, thankfully, <laughs> if you've been wasting your time surviving for a long period, which I think every Christian goes through. I know every Christian goes through. Yeah, God's never going to give up on you. He's going to constantly call you, constantly motivate you, constantly discipline you, constantly teach you until you get it. But you may exit this world not getting it. And that is something that we're going to look at today. Today we look at the contrast of who is the true king and who is this false king that Satan enthrones during the tribulation. He is the pinnacle of man's sin, of man's pride, of man's lust. He is the apex of it. And he is shown to us by God. And so we have in the Bible, you're shown the true king, and you can come to know him, and you're shown the false one. And God allows both to have their time on the stage, and we get to look at both. And so uh, let's start in Luke chapter 19, (coughs) and we'll begin with prayer, thanking God for this opportunity to have an abundant life. Uh, The only way that we're going to gain the knowledge of our Lord so as to live it is in the Scripture. It's the only place that he is revealed. And so as we turn to the Scripture, we pray for humility and reverence so that we uh, sit in awe of God's Word and his revelation. And with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you that through your word we come to know our Lord. And by coming to know him, as he said, we come to know you, for you and him are one. The Holy Spirit within us makes your word understandable. He, the other of the Trinity, who are one, uh, is in us to teach us your word. And so as we humbly submit to your word and attempt to learn it, 
we know that we will. We won't learn more than than that which is in your word, but we can learn all that is there. And we know, Father, that it would take a long time to learn it all, but you will reveal to us what we need. And by doing so, we will glorify our Lord by living like him, thinking like him, our true king, our true savior, the one whom we long for and wait for. We ask through his name. Amen. So God gives us this contrast between the king that he enthrones and has been enthroned, is enthroned now at the right hand of God, and the one that Satan enthrones, and that one will not come. And so what we're going to do is we're going to focus on this Antichrist, this abomination of desolation, when we return to Second Thessalonians, which will be pretty quickly. Uh, I think we've seen enough of you know, what is the rapture and this time of birth pangs and the tribulation to come. Uh, when we look at the beast, we're going to look at some of the details of the tribulation. But I don't want to get too distracted from our letter. You know, we're in Second Thessalonians. If we do the tribulation, we're going to be doing the book of Revelation. And so we'll get to that. We'll get to that. That is to come. But, uh, you know, what we want to see, when we look at this false Christ, there's a reason why God shows him to us. It, we're not going to go through the tribulation. So don't worry, the church isn't. So we're not going to be seeing him on earth. But we're given just enough information about him to see what he's about, right? This is, this is not a robot. This is a man. He's called a man. In all the scriptures that describe him, he's a, he's a person. He's a man who the devil empowers and motivates and rewards. And uh, he has an accomplice called the false prophet. Uh, and there's your unholy trinity, the Satan, beast, and the prophet. And... God puts them, you know, as little as we know about them, it's enough for us to see that, you know, in our own temptation to sin, in our own ability to go away from God and to be selfish and lustful and prideful, you know who we're imitating? The false Christ. Because that's what he is to the utmost. And just and as believers, we can act not be him, but act like him. And so, and and so, God then, in contrast to that, reveals to us our true King. And what little we know about the Antichrist, we know in abundance more about the Christ. And let's continue to look at him here. So, how many in the world do you think understand why Christ left the earth only to return later? Like, how many people out there in the world are like, oh, yeah, 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 I understand. He left and he's coming back. And actually have any inkling of why. And they don't. How about Israel? How many in the world recognize the significance of Israel? Care less, most, and even a lot of Christians think that uh, Israel has real no significance anymore. Because they've been abandoned. Have they been abandoned? They have not. So, this, a lot of this is revealed in the last week of our Lord's ministry. And, and I mean, this is expounded upon in the New Testament. When I say the New Testament, I mean the epistles going from Romans onward, that uh, all of this is further. We have tons of detail about it. But in the final week of our Lord's life, he... You know, right from uh, his own mouth, he teaches about this, this coming again and what's going to happen up to the time that he does. And so the week begins. This is the Passion Week. Uh, he raised Lazarus from the dead just a few days before this. Because of that resurrection or resuscitation, as we call it, Lazarus, uh, you know, Lazarus, to, he was dead four days, so everybody knew this. They live in Bethany. Bethany's only a, a half a day's walk, not even from Jerusalem. Just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, it's a, it's a well-known family. They know Lazarus is dead, and here he is walking around again. And, 
And he's, he's such an evangelist, Lazarus is, that they plotted to kill him as well as kill Christ. There was, there was a, a contract out on Lazarus. I can imagine Lazarus saying, hey, you know, someone's saying to Lazarus, they're threatening to kill you. He'd be like, well, I've been through that before. What's the big deal? You know, Christ would bring me back again and again if he wants to. Um, and so, as Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, it's a few days later, he's been staying in Bethany, and this day he approaches the city, and as he approaches the city, he tells his disciples to go look for a donkey. It's actually, there's two. There's a donkey and the colt, and uh, Jesus is going to ride on the colt. And they're going to find the donkey just as he stated. They'll bring it to him, and he rides it in, just like Zechariah the prophet prophesied. Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king comes to you, humble, adorned, and on the, on the colt of a donkey. Bearing salvation, by the way, as the prophecy says. And in this event... This event which starts this week, Jesus says this as he approaches the city. Look at Luke 19:41. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. He approached the city, he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. So we, we kind of can assume where he was when he did this. As you're coming around the Mount of Olives, you're, there's a place where uh, the road just kind of turns a little bit, and then all of a sudden the city comes into view, and it's likely there. And he says, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. Now, what kind of peace here does he speak of? Uh, you know, peace between them and the Romans, peace on earth, you know, like people think the angels said uh, to the shepherds. Uh, is this, you know, every Miss America in her speech says, I want world peace? You know, is that what he's after? He's talking about peace between man and God. But now, what are the things that make for peace? Him. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. Notice, does he expect them to accept him? He's already determined. He knows. They have rejected him. He does not expect at all when he enters Jerusalem, as the prophet said. This, By the way, when he enters on this day, this is his very first open, from himself, open proclamation that he's the Messiah. This is the first. Remember, if you remember in the Gospels, he would heal people and then say, don't tell anybody. Why isn't he wanting them to tell anybody? Because his hour had not yet come. This is when he's going to publicly, from his own self, proclaim, I'm the Messiah. Does he expect them to uh, accept him? No. And notice what he says in verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. He's going to prophesy this later on in Luke 21. Throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. He's going to say that when you, if you're a believer at the time this happens, which is going to be in 66 AD, if you see this, get ready to run and flee to the mountains. He's going to deliver. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Does that sound familiar? Matthew 24. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What a statement. The time of your visitation is now. The visitor is your Messiah. And what he says here as he weeps might seem to indicate that Israel would be no more. I mean, it looks final, doesn't it? No stone left upon another. Even your children will die. But that is not his message. That's not his complete message. This is not obviously the last thing that he says. Israel will be severely disciplined. He also says that the Gentiles will trample it under their feet and that this time of the Gentiles who will trample Israel will go on until he returns. 
And so even though Israel became a nation again in 1948, they are in no way the nation that God desires. I think it's very significant that they became a nation, but this is not what you see there now, God's client nation. The world is run by Gentiles and will be until he returns. So, and he's going to say this, I am going to return. Notice, as he teaches this, and it's mostly taught in parables, he does not expect at all to be accepted. Right from the beginning of the week, he teaches that he is coming again. Why would he need to come again? Because they're not going to accept him the first time. So, his teaching during this week, which is in a series of parables, would be about a future kingdom, not a present one, a future one that would come when he came again and it would come suddenly and it would come with power and glory in the clouds of the air. And it is this claim that he is the one to come again in the power of God in the clouds of the air that they're going to say, why do we need any more witnesses? Kill him. The Sanhedrin, he's going to die for this claim. Claiming to be what? The Messiah. Now, Luke's account, in Luke's account, the first parable listed is the parable of the wicked vine growers. So look at chapter 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave. They beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. And the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now, we find out that, you know, and you can intimate this by reading the Gospels, that they're going to come to understand that he's referring to himself as the beloved son. And they know that this is about them. And they're going to, we're going to read that in a second. They know that this parable is about them. So if they're the vineyard or the vine growers, who's the owner of the vineyard? If the vineyard is Israel which it is referred to as such in the prophet Isaiah, that if this vineyard is Israel and they're the vine growers, then who's the owner of the vineyard? It has to be Jehovah, Yavah. And who is the beloved son of the owner of the vineyard? And he's claiming himself to be that. You see, this, on this week, he openly proclaims himself to be Messiah. So he says in verse uh, 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. And that by law could happen if uh, there was, the, those who work the vineyard would inherit it if there was no heir to it. So that, that's all he's saying there. He's using a, a means of which they understand Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, may it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The priests and the scribes understand this when they heard it. Uh, they understood that it was about them. And it shows us that, te- that Jesus, even in teaching in parable form, when he wants to make it clear, he does. And they understand this. Look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, they fear, but, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So when he says to them that the owner of the vineyard will come and destroy it and give the vineyard to others, 
They say, may it never be. And this is the same idea that they've had all through the Gospels and continued onward, that we inherit the vineyard just because we're sons of Abraham. In other words, they don't need to accept Christ as their Savior. Just by biologically being born in the family of Abraham, we are entitled to the vineyard. And the answer to that is no. So I'm going to give it to others, which, of course, seems like a prediction that the Gentiles will will be in the church. And this becomes plain to them that they're going to lose the vineyard and the vineyard. However, is the vineyard lost? Does the owner lose the vineyard? In other words, is Israel lost? The answer is no. It's just that he's going to come back. Now, giving it to others, some would interpret that as meaning that the church now gets all the promises to Israel and Israel is no more. This is totally against all prophecy and against all that is plainly taught in the Scripture about the, what's to come, is that the nation of Israel is going to be the center of Christ's kingdom. Okay, so for now what we're, we're focusing here on him and what he means to us. And, and, and therefore, you know, we're, we're trying to take into our souls all that Christ is. And Christ here shows us, I'm the one who made the covenant promises to Israel, and I'm not going to break them. Even though they have rejected me, I have not rejected them. They're going to be disciplined. They're going to be disciplined all throughout this age. Right? Holocaust, the dispersion, the diaspora it's called, the Israel, uh, Jews have been everywhere. They've been persecuted, anti-Semitism, and so on. And they've been blessed amongst it as well. But it hasn't been easy for them in this age. And then in the tribulation, what? It'll be the worst for them. But not only for them. God's an equal opportunity judger. (laughs) And only he can do so. The nations, the Gentile nations of this world will be judged by the wrath of God during the tribulational period. Especially in the second half. And Christ is going to teach on this during this week. He's going to make it clear. Particularly to the disciples. But he's also going to teach parables more This parable is pointed at the leadership of Israel. They even understand that it is against them. And there's two other parables he's going to teach against them. And it wouldn't be just a simple one, the two sons that God says to go work in the vineyard. Now, here we see Christ as the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone, that is the foundation of the house. That is the the cornerstone is that which... The cornerstone is that which uh, all uh, the house is built upon. The house is formed. The, the way of the house is formed based upon the cornerstone. So it's the foundation. Uh, and, and he never ceases to be that. He's prophesied to be that in the Old Testament. We see him say it himself here. And in the New Testament, We're stones in the wall and he is the cornerstone. All in the church are built and are part of the house that he is. And the eternal house of mankind is built upon him and by him according to his specifications. And that's his kingdom. So that's a, I looked all over for a good picture of the new Jerusalem. It's impossible because it's impossible to depict. But in essence, that's it. You know, the new heaven and new earth of all mankind who are saved in all ages will enter into that kingdom. And he is the eternal cornerstone. Those who have rejected him are broken. As he says here, the stone falls on you and you're scattered like dust. To enter the house, to be a part or built on this foundation forever, to be a part of that eternity, is by faith. And that is it. Accepting him by faith, and so, what is this king? I mean, of all the things that he is, graciousness, love, sacrifice, these come to mind. That he, the cornerstone, is going to allow himself to be nailed to a cross so that those who, none of us deserve it, obviously, so that sinners could be a part of that eternal kingdom. He is doing this on purpose. 
so our true king. And he's the one we're waiting for. And he's going to teach us as the, as the New Testament will. You don't know when I'm coming back, but I'm coming quickly. Look up. Straighten up and look. Lift your heads. I return at any time. He was rejected, so he left for a time. Only to return to establish his kingdom on earth, and only after the sins of Israel and the whole world experience the wrath of God in the seven-year tribulational period. During that time, God will allow Satan to set up his own counterfeit king, the abomination of desolation. This false Christ stands in the temple. Jesus is spending a whole big portions of this week teaching in the temple. He's healing in the temple. He's teaching in the temple. When he's in the temple, the children are... Are, are calling him Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who is the son, the blessed is the son of David. And the, the Pharisees and the priests tell Jesus to tell the kids to shut up. Then he quotes Psalm 8, out of the mouth of babes shall come praise. He says, haven't you, haven't you read that? You know, and he, and, and he, by the way, cleansed the temple. It was one of the first things he did on this week is that he went into the temple and threw everybody, all the money changers out and overturned the table. It's the second time he did it. And what is he doing? He's cleansing the temple, but yet when he leaves the temple for the last time, he says, I leave your house to you desolate. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you will not see me again. And he doesn't return. It's no coincidence that Satan is going to put his man... In the temple. It's a counterfeit. That man in the tribulation is going to convince Israel that he's the true Messiah and that the false prophet is Elijah, reborn. He's going to convince them and they're going to accept it. Hence, they make this contract with him. The whole world's going to believe. A lot in the world. Because if you don't worship him, you can't buy or sell. And if you don't bow to the beast, you are put to death. A lot of people are going to give in. A lot of people are going to be fooled by him. Is that any different than what's going on today? No. It's not any different. The principle of it is the same throughout history. And that's why this this false Christ, though we won't see him, hit the principle of who he is, is a danger to every single believer because we're tempted to go the way that he exemplifies. And we, mu- and we must look at that and say, do I want to go that way? Isn't there a better way? Isn't there a way that is Christ? Do I know that way? And, and I mean in every part of my life. Every part. Do I know the way of doing this like he does? Whatever this is. Like the true king. False Christ is pride, lust, selfish desire. Are you tempted with these things? <laughs> I, was, I was listening to, um, I've been listening to Screw Tape Letters. Man, oh man, it's like I never heard it before. It's amazing. And I ordered, my, I ordered another copy of it so that I can have a fresh new copy so that I can kind of go through and read it slowly. But... Um, so one of the things that Screwtape is telling his his uh, protege, uh, Wormwood, to tempt his man with, and it, the premise in the letter is that every demon is assigned to a person to keep them away from God, and Wormwood is assigned to this guy who becomes a Christian. And <clears throat> in the letter, Screwtape says to him, well, one of the things you can do is that when he has free time, invade it. Invade it with something. When he expects to use his time to do such and such or talk to so and so, bring in something that will interrupt that. He looks forward to this nice conversation with this guy. Bring in someone who's a busybody or a talker or something and interrupt. Interrupt his free time. And I'm listening to this whole thing. And uh, I, not an hour later, I had this idea of what I was going to do, and then it got completely interrupted. And I lost it. Not that I don't yell and scream anymore, but in silently in my own mind, I'm fuming. 
I'm mad. And I can't get over it. And I know it's wrong. So I went away and I prayed. And I was like, all right, Lord, we got this. And I just kept fuming. And it took time. And what are we? (laughs) And I'm the only one I know. It's the only experience I know. And that experience is just, I look at selfish desire, pride. I'm tempted to it more than I even know. And this false Christ is, you know, he's the poster child of it. All right? So he is the one that is empowered by Satan himself, the one who revolted against God. Talk about pride. The, he is empowered by Satan himself to, to really throw all his energy into his pride and into his lust and to really go for it. And what happens to him? It ain't good. So if I go the way of pride or selfishness, yeah, I'm forgiven. And yeah, I can confess it. No problem. I do. I did. But I'll never get that time back. (laughs) And, and, And God is teaching us, you failed here, right? Yeah, big time. How would you like to be an overcomer? That the next time this comes around, that you're not selfish, but you're selfless. And when you do that, when you do overcome that test, that trial, you're going to find out that much more about me, your Lord. Therein lies the reward. You'll be more like him. But giving into it, you actually become more like the one who is not him. And God puts these before us. And he says, which one do you want? I set before you life and death, as he said to Israel. In our study, we could say, I set before you the true Messiah and the false one. Which one would you like? To miss the understanding of what I just said is to miss the person of Christ and to miss life itself. And uh, the picture I thought of was an oasis. That's a true, I think it is. It looks kind of mocked up. But I know these oasises, or oasi, I don't know the plural of oasis. Uh, They exist. Right in the middle of a desert where there is no life, there is life. And, you know, that's a wonderful depiction of who we are in the midst of a dark and dying world that is destined for judgment. Here you are, as Christ said, you're the light of the world. Let that light shine. And to let that light shine is to be like him. Now, if I don't understand this king, and I mean really know him, know him so much that you stand in awe of him. If you know him, you will. To love him, to adore him, to want to be with him in his presence more than anything. If you don't know that, you're going to miss what life is. You'll exist. You'll exist. You might even exist in a comfortable manner. But you won't know what life really is. You know, and here we're not even talking about sin because you're still, you'll sin far less than you ever did, but you're still going to be a sinner. Like there are plenty of Christians who have given up vices and they still don't know him. They gave up vices for whatever reason, for their health, which is a good thing. I'm not saying it's not. I've heard some preachers say, nah, give in to it. It's grace. (laughs) Don't do that. But you'll find out. You'll find out when you destroy your mind and your body. But, I mean, even if you, you know, you could be a self-righteous prig who barely sins at all, at least, you know, in the way that people notice as sin, and yet you know nothing of the Lord. You don't know Him. Right? You, there are those who know a little bit of doctrine and yet live in that doctrine. They're far more advanced spiritually than people who know loads of doctrine and don't do anything with it. Lo, they're far more advanced. And because, because of their attitude and their want to be and follow the Lord, everything they learn, they want to put into practice, and they will. So this life we don't want to miss. 
All right, so quickly, we'll read through it quickly, but just so you can see this point in our main passage, and we'll jump back to the Gospels. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because one of the things that Christ is going to do during his final week is, you know, reveal himself to them for who he really is. This is the first time he really does it publicly. So, uh, verse 1. Now we we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And the day of the Lord is a tribulation. That's where it starts. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. This apostasy is the rebellion both politically and religiously against God worldwide. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This is, Jesus calls him, the abomination of desolation who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember? Now notice what he is, the arrogance, the pride, the lust. Notice what he is. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The restrainer, most likely the Holy Spirit, is restraining the activity of Satan on earth during the, this time, which is a time of, you know, a time of birth pangs. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one in whose coming, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, because they didn't believe, so that they will believe what is false. In order that, and that would be the world there during the tribulation in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And as we get farther into this, we'll see how this word wickedness plays into it, along with unbelief, but they go hand in hand. Okay, so that's Paul's description of what is to come. It's not every single detail, but it's enough to show us and to remind the Thessalonians that that time to come is a time of complete apostasy with this false Christ and with the fact that the whole world is, uh, apart from the saints, but the majority of the world is completely deceived and God sends upon them a spirit of delusion because they reject the gospel. And then he says in verse 13, but We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So what does that mean? So in the meantime, you know, while you know that that is coming, God has chosen you, right? Put yourself here. Forget about the Thessalonians for a second. God has chosen you. Put your name there. From the beginning, before the foundation of the, world, from, of the world, for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. You've been chosen for salvation and to live in a sanctified manner. Sanctification here would mean an experience. It was for this, it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. See that? Whose glory? Well, not the one, not the abomination of desolation, though he has a certain glory from Satan, but that's not the glory that we want at all. But what does that glory in him represent? The glory of the flesh, the glory of the world, the glory of sin. And I say, well, you know, I'm tempted to it, and I have a history of it, but 
Do I? Is that the glory that I want? I haven't been called for that. Before the foundation of the world, before all human history, the drama of it had played out, of which what we're seeing in the Gospels is truly like the, the climax of the whole historical drama of salvation, Paul says, look, you've been chosen long before it even started for this purpose. And by this he motivates them. He doesn't throw out rewards and crowns and money and things and you know your, your tribulations and your persecutions will go away. No. They're going to they're remain. They could get worse. But what is life and what is it abundantly? What has your king come to bring to you, to give to you? And that is what life is about. So he says in verse 15, So then, brethren... Stand firm. Hold to the traditions which you were taught. Those are the the doctrines that they were taught by Paul, whether by word of mouth or letter from us. And this is Paul's first letter. So there's probably more doctrines by word of mouth than there are by letter. Now may our Lord Jesus, and, and here in verse 16 is really a prayer. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort, and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. All right, so this, and this is what Jesus would teach, that while he left, and he left the house, you know, the stewards, while the master left and left the stewards in charge of the house, that they were to labor, you know, or take the parable of the minas, the parable of the talents, Right? Each one was given a certain amount of talents and they were to invest it. And when he returns, he was going to call them, each one to himself. And what did they do with what they were given? And it was to be alert and to be watchful for the return of the master, but also to work. And, and that's what he says here. I pray that you're strengthened in every good work and word while the master's away. Now back to Luke. So during this Passion Week, the Lord comes into the final conflict with Israel's rulers. As Christ revealed himself, he revealed his future coming in glory. In Luke 20.20, look at Luke 20.20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they may catch him in some statement. Imagine that. So you're kind of, what they're doing here is they're pretending to be disciples in the crowd listening to him teach in the temple. And so they're actual spies sent by the priests or Sadducees or uh, by the Pharisees. And do you think Jesus doesn't know who they are? Right? This is the God. (laughs) I love how mankind is trying to disguise himself from God. It's It's a beautiful image. And you know, that's another story, but it applies so well. And so why did they do this? Well, they gathered together to say, how do we stop him from, you know, teaching uh, and teaching against us? Right? We saw that he taught the parable of the vine growers, the wicked vine growers, and they knew that it was about them. And they wanted to kill him, but they said, well, you know, he's too popular. If we, if we just arrest him outright, the people are going to revolt. So what should we do? We need something to lessen his reputation among the people, to dest- hopefully to destroy his reputation in front of the people. And if we can do that, then we can arrest him and there won't, they, you know, it won't be so unpopular. But they fail. Everything he says against their little tricks and schemes is brilliant. And I said this yesterday, it shows us our Messiah is wise. We must be wise. Jesus told the disciples, wise, uh, innocent as lambs, right? Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. In his person is what matters most. It's not, and in these stories, we see the, the religious leaders get, you know, trampled by him verbally. And we love it. 
And we should. They try to trap him, and he says something brilliant, and they're like, uh. <laughs> That's all they got. And then he, the same thing happens again, and the same thing happens again. But what matters most is not the stupidity of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. What matters most is him. Why is he so wise? Why is he so gracious? He knows they're going to reject him and nail him to a cross. He tells the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. He, does, he, does, he knows it's going to go down the way it's going to go down. But yet he still is offering to Israel himself. And it's an amazing thing here. That this man is who we want to know. This God man is who we want to know. And let him influence you. Let the beauty of him awe you. Because that will change you. You know, people try so hard to change themselves from things and they just can't do it. And God can do it. I never understood that until, yeah, God can do it. And you figure you figure out if you keep following him, keep wanting the change, and you'll find out how he can do it. One thing I can tell you is you truly do have to lose all your desire to get what you want. <laughs> uh, this statement, what was it? It was by Tim Keller. He just died a little bit ago. Timothy Keller, he had a huge ministry in New York. I have got a, a few of his books on my shelf. Um, and he had, he had a great, a great ministry. I don't know every doctrine that he taught, but um, he said something to the effect that one of his, one of his uh, lessons was on Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. And it was how all of this, you know, God promised Isaac. Isaac was the heir uh, all Israel would be blessed through Isaac, and that he tells Abraham, kill him. Sacrifice him to me. That, that doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, not the fact that I love Isaac more than anything in the world, even my own life, but the fact that your whole promise is supposed to come through this son and you want me to kill him? He doesn't have any children yet. But Abraham does it. And it says in the book of Hebrews that Abraham thought, well, he'll resurrect him if he has to. But what uh, Timothy Keller, Pastor Keller, said was, if your God is the one that you have made from your own feelings, in other words, your, your inner feeling came up with this idea of what God should be that is in your own self, he says, that's not God. That's a projection of yourself. It's a brilliant insight. What you have created is a projection of your own soul, and you made it God. And that's easy to worship, because it's you. <laughs> and what you're doing is, is worshiping yourself. And how many of us have said, oh, I know the Bible says this is a sin, but it's not for me. Because God wouldn't, you know, God understands. I've got an issue in this area, or I've got a weakness in this area, or blah, whatever excuse i got. I say, God understands my excuse. No, he does not. And what Keller said is when God's will goes against yours, that you know you've found God. It's brilliant. When God's will is antithetical to everything that you want, guess who you found? You found him. And, you know, and Jesus, our Lord, is now, once we're enamored with him, and that's wonderful. You know, it gives you this, this warm, cuddly, cushy, fuzzy feeling. Couldn't think of the word. And... Yeah, and that's great. And in a lot of churches in our modern world, that's their whole ministry is to give everybody a fuzzy feeling from Jesus. 
But what about when Jesus says, be holy for I am holy? What about when Jesus says, you have to do this? I don't care if you understand it or not. You have to do it. What about when Jesus says, obey me or you don't love me at all? And we say, well, that's not very fuzzy. That's not. And when Jesus speaks to them concerning himself, they're going to say, that doesn't make any sense. You see, for Israel, the problem is that their idea of what Messiah was, was wrong. They were expecting a Messiah. You would never, Jesus didn't go to the Gentiles. He didn't go to Rome. He went to his own because his own have the law. They have the Mosaic law. They have the prophets. They have the writings. And in all of those, all of that literature is the depiction of the Messiah. They were to know who he was. Plus, John the Baptist is sent beforehand to prepare them all, which he did. And they're to see him for who he is. And so to see him for who he is, Jesus now asks them a question. After they tried to trap him with all their little questions, and he answered brilliantly, look at Matthew 22. You see, when you honor this Lord the way that we're supposed to, when he tells you to do something, I'm not going to say you do it perfectly all the time now, right? You know me. I never say that. I'm too much of a sinner myself to even remotely think about saying that. But you know that you have to do it. You know what that gets rid of? All the excuses. All the blaming. It's his, her fault. My, you know, my upbringing, my DNA, all that nonsense. I have to do it. And your flesh is going to say you can't do it. And you're going to tell the flesh, no, you can't do it. Stupid. You can't do it. I have God within me who is greater than my flesh. So Matthew twenty two forty one. Now he cuts through all their nonsensical, trivial questions. He gets right to the point. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Now they don't hesitate. They know who the Christ is. Christ Christos in Greek means Messiah. This is, that's the, it's a title. It's not Jesus' name. It's Jesus' title. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. And so as uh, quickly here on the board, Jeremiah 23.5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. That is the son of David. They know this. It's not the only passage. There's several others. But they know this. Who is? Now, notice Jesus' question. It's not who is the Messiah. It's whose son is he? He's the one leading the question about the origin of the Messiah. Whose son is he? They say the son of David. They're probably like, ah, that's an easy one. Come on, you great rabbi. (laughs) Can't you come up with a tougher question than that? Oh, I can just see it. He sets them up. He says, he's brilliant. He sets them up. They're prideful. Oh, I got that answer. And then in verse 43, he said to them, how does how, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, quote Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Oh, we didn't see that one coming. Nor had they thought of this before. This is one of those things where you you know a scripture like the back of your hand, but you don't really understand it yet. Probably a bunch of those for us that we think we know, and we're not really in the know yet. But the Lord asks about origin. Whose son is he? In the east at this time, in the east in our time, in the west, uh, children don't obey their parents generally. 
But in the East, especially during this time, a parent would never call their son Lord, ever, ever. <laughs> you know, there's a patriarchy, and it is the way that it never bends to anybody's opinion. It doesn't bend to wokeness. You know, Lord means, the Greek kurios, it means master. You would never call your son Lord. But yet, David does call him Lord. So, what does that mean? That the son of David is greater than David. And how could the son of David be greater than David? He would have to be the son of God. And they have no answer. Now, for the sake of time, you know, we're going to return to this. This is exactly what I said yesterday when I got to this passage. (laughs) And I'm always front-loading it, probably, uh, obviously, a little too much. What we see about this is Jesus is going to repeat this, sit at my right hand. And he's going to repeat it when he's under trial. And when he says it, that's when the high priest is going to tear his clothes and say, what more need do we have for witnesses? He is worthy of death. And Jesus, as he told, as he told uh, Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, I can call down 70,000 angels anytime that I want. But I'm going to let them do this to me. Now, why is he going to do that? Well, the son of David, who is a man, the son of God, who is God, is going to establish a kingdom for mankind. And it's not going to be like the kingdom that the devil wants for this world. And therein lies the contrast between the two kings. This king is going to lay his life down so that we can be with him forever. Royalty. You're heirs of Christ. What is an heir in the family? In the family forever. You're heirs. You and I are heirs. Children of God. And he is alone the one who did that. So, um, he's rejected and then he leaves. Promising to come back with his kingdom. Their response to his claim, which is to kill him, is a a beginning type, if you will, a precursor of this king to come who is the abomination of desolation. He wants to kill everybody who disagrees with him. You don't worship him, you're put to death. They want to kill him and they do. They kill the Lord. And so they do not honor him, obviously. And in this time that we have here before he does come for us, the question lingers for each of us in terms of our understanding and knowing him is, do we honor him? Do we stand in awe of him? Do we know enough about him to do both of those things? Because anybody can try to honor the Lord. If you don't know him, you can't honor him. You have to know him for who he is and then know that he deserves honor. You have to know him for who he is and then know that he is worthy of awe. And you will. Do you long for him to return? And a lot of Christians do, but I think in many cases, Christians long for him to return so that their hard lives can end. And that's a selfish reason. And your hard life will end. But do you long for him to return so that you can be with him? So who we worship really does determine what kingdom we're striving for. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the guidance of truth that comes from the words of our Lord, for his sacrifice for him to be our true king, to reveal himself in his graciousness and his mercy and his love for us. May we, Father, 
respond to our King in manner in the manner that we should, glorified, being glorified by Him and glorifying Him in this world. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.